Good morning, everyone. We welcome you again to North Suburban Church, whether you're joining us online or here in person. Can I get a show of hands who's a little bit sore from Project Share yesterday? I'm not the only one. Um, if you saw that video slideshow earlier but weren't quite familiar with what it was, for the 16th year in a row yesterday, we were able to host a packing of Thanksgiving food baskets for families in need around Chicagoland. And thanks to you all, we did pass off to our ministry partners 1,344 baskets that they have now delivered to families in need. So thanks to you all for your generosity and for your service to the Lord and those in need. Today we conclude our fall sermon series because if you can believe it, next week is Advent. So let's pray. Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. True story, a few weeks ago, as I was looking for the email address of my financial advisor, I pulled up the most recent email I had received from him. Here's what it said. Hey, Tim and Sarah, I want to recommend that we dump what you have and purchase stock in Pfizer and Johnson & Johnson. The timestamp on that email was December 17th, 2019. Before any of us ordinary folk were really thinking seriously about a pandemic, much less vaccines. Now at the time, did I read that email? Yes. I remember thinking, hmm, wonder why, or maybe I'll talk to Sarah about that. Uh, did I ever get around to responding to that email or investing in that stock? No. <clears throat> but what if tomorrow, in my deep and sincere remorse, I printed out that email, brought it to the New York Stock Exchange, and said, look, two years ago, I was so close to the action. I should have pulled the trigger. What can I cash in now? Obviously, I'd get laughed out because earnings aren't achieved by the folks sitting on the sideline watching. If you want the rewards, you've got to take a risk. Get in the game, right? So I, I wonder who's here this morning, and you're on the sideline watching when it comes to this whole Jesus thing. Maybe your response to Jesus has been like my response to that email. Hmm, interesting. I need to get around to giving that some thought sometime. But then you never do quite seem to come back to it, at least not seriously enough to put any of your own skin in the game. Today we wrap up our fall sermon series with a man who did get off the sideline to get in the game. Would you turn with me to Mark chapter 10 if you haven't already? Mark chapter 10, we've titled this series The Way because Mark 8:22 to 10:52 is a section of Mark's gospel devoted to Jesus' teaching about the way of following him. And though his disciples are slow to grasp it, the fact is that it's a way that leads not to glorious triumph, but to the hill of crucifixion. That spiritual blindness on the part of Jesus' closest followers seems to be why Mark bookends this section, this 822 to 1052, with healing miracles. So back in September, we started off this series with the healing of a blind man in Mark 822, and now today he caps this section off with the healing of another blind man starting in Mark 10, 46. 
In the passages between those two healings of physical blindness, Jesus has been addressing the disciples' spiritual blindness. And by extension, he's been addressing our spiritual blindness as well. So to review these last couple months, here's what our blindness, spiritually speaking, can look like. We think that following Jesus should bring us strength, victory, prestige. But we find instead Christ inviting us into weakness, suffering, even failure in the world's eyes. What else? We think that following Jesus should give us a platform to express ourselves. But we find instead Christ calling us to deny ourselves. We think that following Jesus should earn us a crown on our heads, but we find instead Christ first instructing us to take a cross on our backs. That's the macro view of the two chapters that we've studied so far this fall. Now, on a micro level, the passage most immediately preceding today's passage is when Jesus found his disciples elbowing for position and he addressed their competitive drive for status or rank by reiterating the upside-down nature of the kingdom. Take a peek back at the verses immediately preceding verse 46. You see Jesus saying, The one who wants to be first must be the slave or servant of all. And of course, to be a slave to all means you'll have to serve people who will never be able to repay you. Today we'll see Christ putting that into action as he interacts with a man named Bartimaeus. This passage takes us through Bartimaeus' six-step journey. At the beginning of the story, to use our keyword for the series, Bartimaeus is not on the way. We'll see. But at the end of the story, Mark tells us that Bartimaeus is now on the way. So if you're here this morning and you haven't yet truly begun to follow Christ, today you're going to encounter just one lived example of what it might look like to begin your own journey on the way. And on the other hand, if you are following Christ, recounting the journey of Bartimaeus today may be an opportunity for you to remember your own story coming to Christ and an opportunity for you to consider the role you might play in bringing someone else along with you on the way. So let's jump in and uh, reread just uh, briefly each section of the passage. First, verse 46, Bartimaeus sits by the way. Take a look at verse 46 with me. And they came to Jericho, and as Jesus was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. After this story, the rest of Mark's gospel will take place in or around Jerusalem. Here in this story, we have one last stop before that in Jericho, a city on the far outskirts. So if you've been with us, you may recall that Jesus has had encounters with several prospective followers of his along the way. Most recently, a rich young ruler whom everybody expected would be a prime candidate for discipleship, for following Jesus. Jesus' disciples were shocked. When Jesus let the rich young ruler walk away from the invitation to follow because it was going to be too costly for him. The encounter that Jesus is going to have in today's passage is on the complete opposite end of the spectrum. This isn't a rich young ruler. This is a blind beggar sitting by the roadside. Somebody nobody pays attention to. His name is Bartimaeus. And considering that he is the only recipient of healing in Mark's gospel to be explicitly named Scholars have conjectured that Bartimaeus, he may have been known, actually, to Mark's first readers in his own church community. Like, they would have been reading this out loud in church one Sunday morning and been like, oh, listen, Bart, this is a story about you. Now, I want to zero in on the fact that, according to verse 46, at the beginning of this story, Bartimaeus is sitting by the roadside begging. 
And it's possible that there's no significance in that language besides Mark just setting the scene. But in the original, this word translated roadside is actually the same word that's often translated throughout this gospel, the way. Bartimaeus begins this story by sitting by the way. And you might recall that Mark has made that word a theme in this section, using it over and over again. It's no accident. The first generation of Jesus followers used the way like we would use the term Christianity. According to Acts 9, before Jesus followers were known as Christians, they were known as those who belonged to the way. So is this an incidental use of the term at the end of verse 46 when Bartimaeus is sitting by the way? Maybe. But when we consider that this section of Mark's gospel is bookended by uses of this term, and this particular passage today is bookended by uses of the word, I think that there's actually significance here. That at the beginning of this story, Bartimaeus is only by the way, but at the end he will be on the way. Maybe you know somebody who's sitting by the way. A family member, a friend of yours, who has some familiarity with Jesus, but hasn't quite started to follow him yet. Or maybe that's not just somebody you know. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're an observer at the moment. You're taking it all in. And if that's you, let me first off affirm that sitting by the way is a great start. Like, we're so glad you're here listening in. But let me also gently remind you of what you already probably know deep down inside, that it's kind of silly to stay by the way forever. Like the person who merely considered purchasing Pfizer and J&J stock in December 2019 didn't actually earn anything at all in the end. Similarly, there ought to be an urgency for all of us in figuring out who we think this Jesus is. There's only two possibilities. One, if he's a phony, then there's no need to waste any more time even along the roadside, by the roadside. Go live your life. There are better things to do. But if, on the other hand, he is who he says he is, how tragic would it be to miss out on the opportunity to get off the side of the road and follow him along the way? Let's not get ahead of ourselves, though. Let's keep tracking the story. Second, Bartimaeus cries for mercy. Bartimaeus cries for mercy. Look with me again at verses 47 and 48. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. All but the most stubbornly self-sufficient of us have cried out for mercy in some way at some point. Coaching my son's four-year-old soccer team this fall, there were a few moments when myself and our team's other coach looked at each other and were quite close to approaching the other team's coaches to request some sort of mercy as we were getting goal after goal after goal scored on us relentlessly. Many of us have reached a point of desperation in our lives that has moved us at some point to cry out similarly to Jesus for mercy, something like Bartimaeus does here. But there are three features of Bartimaeus' cry for mercy that I find useful as I consider my own pleas for mercy that I am prone to make from time to time. First, it's humble. It's humble. It's just a cry for mercy, period. Bartimaeus isn't pleading his own merits. This isn't a prideful, Jesus, I, I pretty much got this on my own, but can I just get a little boost up, a little assistance? The request for mercy is an acknowledgement of helplessness. 
And in this way, Bartimaeus is the polar opposite of the rich young ruler that we met last week, isn't he? Well, the rich young ruler was saying, I bring a lot to the table, Jesus, but what do I still lack? Bartimaeus is saying, I bring nothing to the table, Jesus. Can you give me what I lack? Second, his cry for mercy is insightful. He could have just called out, Jesus, have mercy on me. Fine. But he throws in another term that would have raised eyebrows in this crowd. Do you notice what he calls Jesus? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Twice in verses 47 and 48. In this crowd, they knew exactly what son of David meant. This is a crowd, they were all looking forward to the coming of the son of David. David, you might remember, was the greatest king in Israel's history, and the Hebrew Bible is filled with prophecies, starting with 2 Samuel chapter 7, of a descendant of David who would one day come, who'd be greater than even David himself, who's going to come and be even the sort of king that David couldn't have been. And in Mark's gospel, not many have recognized Jesus as this king from David's line. In other words, as the Messiah. Peter did a couple chapters back, and Jesus said, you're right, but shh, keep it quiet. It's not time for everybody to know yet. But now as the entourage approaches Jerusalem, it's about time for the secret to start getting out. It's unclear how Bartimaeus knows that Jesus isn't just an outstanding rabbi, isn't just a wise prophet, but is also the royal son of David. Maybe he's just calling this out in desperation to try to get Jesus' attention. But it's alternatively possible that this is an insight given to him from God. In any case, his plea insightfully names what few others have been able to name. Finally, his plea is persistent. It's persistent. I'm thinking about the phrase, all the more, in verse 48. Do you notice that? Bartimaeus is shushed, just like the people who are trying to bring Jesus' children to Jesus a few verses back. He could have given up, but what does he do instead? He shouted, all the more. So let's reflect on that humility, that insight, and that persistence for just a moment. First, the humility. You and I, are we still hanging on to hope that we can fix ourselves? Or are we ready to admit our blindness, spiritually speaking, and to concede our utter inability to do anything at all to fix the predicament that we find ourselves in? Then there's the insight. Right? Have we recognized Jesus yet, not just as a guru or a prophet or a great teacher, but as who he says he is, namely our king? And third, the persistence. If we do cry out to Jesus, people are going to try to hush us up. Are we desperate enough yet that others' attempts to discourage us will make us only cry out all the louder? In response to that humble, insightful, and persistent plea, Jesus calls Bartimaeus. Verse 49. Take a look. Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up. He's calling you. Think of all the reasons Jesus would have had not to stop for Bartimaeus. Just a few verses ago, verse 33, Jesus reiterated that he's got the most important of important tasks just ahead of him in Jerusalem. There are more people wanting his help than there are hours in the day. He himself is suffering under the weight of what he knows is about to happen to him. If anybody could have made a case for saying, hey, sorry, Bart, I, I got to get going with the business of the kingdom. It was Jesus. Yet, 
Just like with the little children a few verses back, Jesus sees the least and the lost not as distractions to the business of the kingdom, but as the whole point of the business of the kingdom. Jesus notices, and he's got time for Bartimaeus. The crowd that was so hostile back in verse 48 now takes the hint, and immediately they become the agents of Jesus' call. Do you see that? Jesus tells them to call him, and, and they do. So imagine being Bartimaeus and hearing these words. Take heart. Get up. He's calling you. You've been down for so long. Take heart. Get up. He's calling you. I don't know who it is, but I do believe that God wants someone here this morning or maybe somebody watching online to hear those words this morning as words written specifically for you. Take heart. Get up. He's calling you. You came this morning ready to give up, but take heart. He's calling you. I also believe there's somebody here this morning, somebody else who's already answered Jesus' call, but who maybe has forgotten that this right here is the work of the kingdom. Namely, to go to the least and the lost along the road, to the overlooked ones desperate for relief and to say on behalf of Jesus, take heart, get up. He's calling you. That's why we say sometimes around here, the people are the mission. People are the mission. Someone like Bartimaeus will never be able to repay you. He's not notable in the world's eyes. Yet, he is not an inconvenience to ministry work. He is dearly loved and seen by Jesus. In response to the call, Bartimaeus, he responds in faith, verses 50 and 51. 50 and 51. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Question, do you want to get healed? Do you want to get healed? I ask because sometimes we don't want to get healed, if we're honest. We all probably can remember at some point as a kid waking up and straining to muster up a cough in hopes that we could stay home from school that day. Why? Because when you're homesick, you can lay around, be doted over. There's nothing expected of you. But there's a grown-up version of that too, isn't there? If I indefinitely remain in the mentality that I'm purely a victim of my circumstances, then I can be pitied. I can be taken care of. And I can therefore be free from the fear of disappointing people because their expectations for me are low or non-existent. That's why if we're honest, some of us would admit that at least at times when we hear those beautiful words, take heart, get up, he is calling you, we don't always jump to our feet like Bartimaeus does. Instead we say, right, Jesus stopping to help me, I'll believe it when I see it. And we're exposed in that moment as people who aren't actually crying out for healing, but rather who are crying out so that we will have an excuse. You know what I mean? Like we're, we're actually more comfortable sometimes living the narrative, I've tried everything and nothing works. I guess this is my lot in life. 
So when Jesus offers a way out, the prospect of being healed actually terrifies us. Bartimaeus gives us a picture of a different way, the way of a disciple of Jesus. Instead of responding, poor me, I doubt Jesus will be able to do anything for me, he springs to his feet and says, I'll tell you exactly what I want you to do for me. Let me recover my sight. And the throwing off of the cloak in verse 50, you see that? Maybe it's just vivid storytelling. But it's notable, isn't it, that this is the exact opposite of the rich young ruler who wouldn't lay down his stuff just a few verses back. For a blind beggar like Bartimaeus, a cloak is probably all he has. Yet, the cloak couldn't mean less to him when he hears Jesus' calling. Jesus' calling means there's a chance to get better. What about you? Do you want to get better? Do you want to be healed of that wound in your life? Or would you rather just remain a victim? Hear the words of Jesus this morning, asking you in tenderness, what do you want me to do for you? We actually want to invite you to name that right now. Uh, Here's the number on the screen. I want to actually invite you to send a text message. Sometime between now and the end of the sermon, if you'd like, send a text to that number, 224-300-0240. You can do this also if you're at home with a response to that question. Namely, Jesus, this morning, is asking you, what do you want me to do for you? This is a chance for you to respond, Lord, as scary as it is, I want you to, what? At the end of this sermon, myself and a couple of other leaders in our church will take a few minutes right here on the stage and pray over those requests out loud, no names associated. But we will lift up those cries to God out loud, giving the congregation a chance to agree together in prayer over these requests. Are you willing to take a risk to acknowledge your lack and to express your trust by by naming this this morning? What you want Jesus to do? What do you want Jesus to do for you? Step five of six, Bartimaeus is saved. He's saved, verse 52. First part of verse 52. Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. I word it, Bartimaeus is saved because that's another legitimate way of translating what we just read there in verse 52. In fact, you may have some of you in your translation, go your way. Your faith has saved you. Same Greek word can be used to refer to both physical and spiritual healing, which reflects the reality that the two were perhaps not so separate in the minds of the first believers. In other words, early believers would have been set up well when they were reading this or hearing this to catch that there may be multiple layers of wellness and healing and saving that are taking place here in the life and eyes and heart of Bartimaeus. After all, 700 years before Jesus came along, this is what Isaiah said was going to happen one day. Notice the language in Isaiah uh, 35 about blindness, about salvation, and about the way altogether. It's almost too perfect here. <clears throat> Here's what Isaiah says. It might be hard to see up there. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with a vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. What does that salvation look like? Well, th- verse 5, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. 
For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there. And it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. These words in Isaiah 35 are part of a new exodus that Isaiah envisions. Not unlike the first exodus from slavery in Egypt, but this time it's an exodus from our ultimate slavery to sin and its effects. So if you remember the past weeks of this series, when we saw Mark framing Jesus as a new Moses who forms a reconstituted Israel by faith, we now see Mark taking pains to frame the work of Jesus here as hints of the inauguration of a new exodus. And what gives Bartimaeus the right to participate in this new exodus. In other words, when Jesus says to Bartimaeus, your faith has saved you, what exactly is this faith that saves or heals Bartimaeus? In context, especially contrasted with those who, haven't, who aren't saved or haven't been healed by Jesus, Bartimaeus' saving faith seems to be this sort of empty-handed faith that can say, all I bring to you, Jesus, is nothing at all. Because as it turns out, nothing is the only thing that's needed. For those of us who have much, nothing can actually be the hardest thing in the world to bring. But the only faith that saves is the faith that brings nothing. Saving faith, in other words, rests solely on the work of Christ. It's the same today as it was for Bartimaeus. Jesus is not inviting those who can bring a handful of good deeds to come to him for healing. Our good deeds are filthy rags, he says. He's not inviting those of us who can dictate a list of correct doctrines to come to him for wholeness. The devil can list correct doctrines. He's not inviting those who have their acts together to come to him for salvation. That's a mirage. He's inviting those who are willing to trust him enough to come to him empty-handed. To come taste the ultimate salvation, the ultimate healing. Have you responded to Jesus in that sort of saving faith? Finally, Bartimaeus begins following Jesus on the way. Verse 52, second half of it. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. I want to make sure we don't miss that after recovering his sight, which happens immediately... Bartimaeus began to follow Jesus along the way. And note in Bartimaeus' case, this wasn't in response to some command or obligation from Jesus. Jesus actually gave him permission at the beginning of verse 52 to go his own way. But the overflow of gratitude that Bartimaeus feels makes him say what many of us have said. I, I know I don't have to, but what else would I want to do besides follow Jesus along the way? That's a picture, isn't it, of the joyful submission to Christ? That's at the heart of discipleship. Now, let's be honest. Following Jesus can sometimes feel like a chore. I don't want to pretend like it doesn't. I certainly have experienced seasons, long seasons sometimes, 
when the way feels like a drag. If that's where you are today, then maybe today's a day to remember that you were once Bartimaeus. Maybe it's a chance to reflect on what Jesus did for you as he himself saw you, as he was walking along the way. This way that Jesus was walking in Mark 10, remember that it wasn't like, it wasn't like the Buddha in his eightfold noble path. It wasn't some sort of abstract morality that Jesus laid out somehow like an instruction manual. No, Jesus was walking a way that he knew would lead him to a Roman cross, an instrument of torture and death in which he would experience hell so that you and I would never have to. Do you see, Jesus, his way isn't like the way of any other religious leader in world history because, as one apologist explained, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. The cross at the end of Jesus' way wasn't the tragic interruption of a good life. It was the entire point of the way all along. As such, it's not the barking of orders that makes us dutifully follow Jesus on the way. Rather, it's the experience of his kindness that leaves us unable to imagine anything we could possibly want more. Well, I don't actually have a big idea to leave you with today. Every attempt I made to condense it into one statement seemed too trite. Instead, I just want to leave us with two takeaways this morning. One for those who aren't yet believers and another for those who are believers. First, for those along the roadside who haven't yet started out on the way. Today in the scriptures, you've encountered the long-awaited son of David who's about to go into his city where he will willingly suffer rejection so that you and I can forever be accepted by God despite our repeated betrayals of him. And astoundingly, this son of David, he has noticed you along the way, you personally, and he's recognized your plight. Now listen to the good news that's directed your way. Take heart. Get up. He's calling you. Today can be the day when you respond to his call with faith. Today can be the day when you accept his healing and join him on the road to that city of both suffering and glory. And finally, for those who are here this morning who are already on the path, may we never become those in the crowd who ignore, or worse, who try to shush the Bartimaeuses that we encounter along the way. There's somebody in each of our lives that God has called and empowered us to tell the good news to. The good news is take heart, get up, he's calling you. Let's ask for the eyes of Jesus to see these broken, needy individuals who are sitting right there in the place where we once sat, who recognize their need of a Savior, and let's pass on to them that greatest invitation of all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you didn't leave us in our plight, that you didn't leave us along the roadside. And Lord Jesus, we, we praise you that you saw us and noticed us and that you stopped as you stopped for Bartimaeus to hear us, 
to take the time to ask us, what do you want me to do for you? And Lord, give us the courage this morning to be honest with our answer to that question. To ask you for that thing that we feel too scared to ask you. Because either it seems too big or there's too much risk of disappointment if you don't come through. Or because the prospect of being healed and people starting to expect things from us just seems too much. Whatever the reasons are, Lord, give us the courage to name it, to come to you in humility with our plea. Lord, I want to see. I want to be well. Hear our prayers, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.